This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Christina Crawford to talk about her book, Spatial Revolution. Uh, Christina, thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm uh, really delighted to be able to, to talk about my book. Oh, same here. Now, before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So, uh, so I'm an associate professor of architectural history in the art history department at Emory University in Atlanta. Um, I just received tenure, so it felt really Congratulations. good to say associate <laughs> professor. I mean, not that it matters to anyone outside of academia, but um, so I'm an architectural historian and I'm also a trained and, and in fact, still licensed architect. Um, so sh- I guess um, just to, to, to draw it out a little bit and maybe to, 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 to set up the discussion um I'll tell a little bit kind of further deep in my biography. Um, Okay. So to to kind of explain where this book comes from. Um, So going back to 1990, uh, I did a gap year between high school and college and um, was an exchange student in in the Soviet Union. (laughs) So the, the very last year of the Soviet Union, sort of as it was falling apart. So 1990 to 91, and I lived uh, with a Russian family, and that's how I learned how to speak and read and read and write Russian. Um, and um, and that's you know in a way like that's the the core of um, of my interest in you know the whole kind of that that whole geography of of Eastern Europe, Eurasia. Um, and then when I was in college, um, I can I sort of continued to study uh, Russian and Eastern European studies and also architecture. So always wanted to be an architect. Um, and and basically, you know, from from college and then you know to the present day, I kept in a way sort of going back and forth between these two interests. So I actually worked for the Foreign Service for a year in Saint Petersburg, Russia. Then I went to architecture school. 
then I took another gap year um, in architecture school and was a Fulbright student in Ukraine. Um, and then I practiced in Boston as an architect for eight years. And so it's sort of, you know, back forth, back forth, back forth. Um, and then finally, finally decided, you know what, I'm going to get a PhD and, um, and I'm going to figure out a way to marry these two, these two interests. And so, so there you go. There's the book. I mean, it's the, um, I guess it's the marriage of, um, you know, kind of interest in, in the practice of architecture and then also, you know, this, this particular geography and, uh, and chronology of, of the Soviet, Soviet Union. And so that would have been my first question, you know, very specific time period, very specific place. And so I guess you kind of answered, you know, where, where that interest comes from. Yeah. And so, and so that's great. And so we've could jump right in now. And so again, I would start kind of with the broad question of, you know, and you've, and you've broken yours up into three parts, you know, what, for those who haven't had the chance to, to read the book yet, what are you trying to explain to, to the, the readers? Yeah. I mean, um, so, so I guess, you know, as I explained, I, you know, my interest in, in Soviet architecture, you know, certainly goes back to, to college, um, and grad school. And, and yet every time I encountered, you know, kind of material about, about Soviet architecture, certainly the beginning of the Soviet period, it was always about the avant-garde. So, so Russian avant-garde, you know, f- focused on Moscow paper projects, right? So unbuilt projects. And so the, 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 I would say like the big motivating question of the book then and the, and the research was, okay, love these really, really visionary paper projects, but like what was built, right? So what, um, what was actually built in this time and, and further, like what, like how, how were architects and planners? So how were the practitioners kind of understanding their work, um, especially like in the early Soviet period where we're, you know, transitioning from capitalism to socialism, like what the heck does that mean in terms of like spatial practices, right? So, so, so what I'm trying to do in the book is, um, is kind of get at this question. So what was being built? How are the architects and planners? And of course, like governmental f- officials and such, like, how are they, how are they f- kind of framing their, their spatial project? Um and what were they building, right? So, um, so the book uh, strings together three different sites. Um, so Baku, which is in present-day Azerbaijan, which was an oil city, so you know, kind of replanned very early because you know it was the Soviet oil bank. Um, the second city that I look at is Magnitogorsk, which is a, you know, big steel city. Um, and then the last is Kharkiv in Ukraine, which was a kind of a machine building city. And, um, and so I, you know, and, and those kind of march along in chronology, you know, in a kind of chronology from like 1924 to 32. And, and each of these sites is kind of learning something from its predecessor. Um, and I mean, uh, you know, I, I really got in the weeds and, and really was, was trying to understand, like, you know, like trying to get my, my head in the, in the architect's heads, right? Like, like, what were they up to? Right. Um, so, so that's the, yeah, that's the kind of like the big, the, 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 the kind of big overview of, of what no, that's perfect. Out. And so I guess not that we're going to go Lydia, but, you know, starting with you, you mentioned Baku. And again, yeah. I'm always honest about whatever assumptions I bring into the books I read and, mm-hmm. and how I'm, I'm almost always kind of proven wrong or learn something new. 
you know, you mentioned people's perception of Soviet architecture, and I'm willing to admit that I think like a lot of people when you hear about Russian architecture, you think of, you know, the Kremlin, big dome, stereotypical buildings you see on TV. Yeah. And so the first, you know, Paku, and again, I'm going to butcher this name. It's very interesting that you make a few cases where there was a lot of American influence, unless I'm completely misunderstanding, Mm -hmm. on kind of what they're building. And again, I'm going to butcher this. Is it Severovsky? Oh, um, uh, traveled oh, to... oh, 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 my, um, my protagonist in Baku. Yeah. Serebrowski. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> I knew I was going to mess that up, but so, you know, it's an interesting thought that I've never really thought of, of about the, uh, the American influence and I think specifically mass production of housing. And again, yeah. maybe I'm kind of missing the point here, but could you walk us through that a little bit? So I guess, you know, I, I, as you know, a person who grew up in the, in the eighties, let's say like had a very, a, you know, in retrospect, a very kind of Cold War understanding of the relationship between the Soviet Union and, and the U.S. and and understood the Soviet Union to be like completely on its own, let's say. Um, but but in the 1920s and early 1930s, there was just like an incredible um, kind of exchange of ideas about like specifically about industrial architecture and, and this is why the Americans become so un- important is that, um, you know, Detroit, Cleveland, Gary, Indiana, I mean, these are all like really, really important industrial architecture sites um, that that the rest of the world is looking at and certainly the, the Soviets are looking at. So, um, you know, architectural standardization, architectural mass production, whether it's an industrial building or in housing, um, the Soviets were um, were very very aware uh, vis- visiting the United States, um, hiring American architects and, and technical specialists um, to bring their expertise to the Soviet to the Soviet Union. So that kind of that, that really surprised me. I did not know that going into the into the research. I know, and so, as I said, you know, I, I, just like you said, I was also not expecting to see so many American names in this kind of. And so again, I guess we will move. Linear. I don't, we don't often literally go through, but you know, moving on to kind of your second part of the book, you know, when we started this discussion, you had mentioned there's a lot of projects that were on paper but never got built. However, I, I do think it is sort of worth discussing a lot of the comp- competitive kind of theoretical stuff that w- that was actually happening. Yeah. Yeah, so you're talking specifically about like the the Magnitogorsk, like the competition there. Yes, and I yeah. was not going to be able to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that um, so that site, it's uh, so the three sites I, I, sh- I should have mentioned. So Baku is in present day Azerbaijan. Um, Magnitogorsk is in Russia, but it's in the like on the far side of the Urals, like like almost Siberia. Um, and then um, Kharkiv, the last one, is in Ukraine. So there's a, a kind of di- diversity of geography. But at any rate, so, so Magnitogorsk um, was, you know, it was it was located where it was because there was this, you know, kind of natural uh, mountain of iron ore, which is, you know, and and that was the the, the raw material that was needed for the steel factory. Um, but it was like, I mean, totally in the middle of nowhere. So, um, and you know, that particular site, so we're talking 1929, it's like the the chronology actually is quite important. Um, so 1929, um, the Soviet first five-year plan starts, which is a sort of big hyper-industrialization drive. 
um, the world economy crashes, <laughs> right? So the Soviets are on the upswing, like the rest of the you know capitalist world is on the downswing. Um, and Magnitogorsk uh, is an interesting case because it um, because there was I mean literally nothing there. Um, the it, it was a site where there was a really important architectural competition and planning competition where um, some avant-garde architects, um, some, you know, kind of more uh, everyday practicing architects were, were thinking about like, what does a socialist city look like? Um, and they actually designed it, you know, for this competition, which, you know, there was no winner for. Um, and ultimately, uh, after the failed competition, which is super, super interesting and worth reading about, I hope you agree, um, uh, the, the Soviets were then like, oh, well, maybe we should just hire somebody who actually has done this before. And so they hired the German architect Ernst May, um, who had done a lot of housing, mass produced housing in Germany um, to come and, and design the city. So complicated story, but um, but but pretty interesting. Uh, no, absolutely. And I actually went to the appendix and read the, the competition brief. Oh, you did. I'm so glad. Yeah, I did. <laughs> like for architects, I just like I could not believe that find. I was like, this is exactly what I want to know. Like, right. How are they framing the problem architecturally? And it's incredibly, incredibly specific, you know, down to like, you know, square footages for this and that, you know, it's really amazing. And I'll have to urge everyone who does pick up a copy to read that part as well. And so I gave you fair warning about this. So moving on to the third part, you know, Kharkiv, I think obviously the elephant in the room, the thing with Russia and Ukraine, definitely at the forefront of a lot of people's minds now, where it probably wasn't not too long ago. And so I do want to talk about your your focus before we move on to that question of, you know, how have the, I'm sure people are asking you a lot about probably more so, but based on at the current events. I'm sorry. I don't, hopefully that question makes sense. Yeah. So, um, so right. So since, you know, February 24th, 2022, when, um, you know, the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, um, it's, uh, I've had to do like a fair amount of kind of soul searching myself, like to, 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 to try to think about, um, what it is that I that I researched and I wrote in the book, and like, what are the implications for what we're seeing today? And I think that there are some. Um, but maybe to back up um, to just explain kind of what those last two chapters in that last um, part of the book is about. So Kharkiv is it? Yeah, Kharkiv is in. Um, so it's in eastern, like northeastern Ukraine. Um, and the city, it's the second largest city in Ukraine, um, sort of historically very important city. Um, and with a lot of, you know, educational institutions, um, universities, uh, fin- I mean, amazing architecture. Like, I can't stress this enough. So when this is all over, like, I hope a lot of tourists, architectural tourists go there because it's phenomenal. But the story, the story that I tell in the in the book is about the kind of the design and construction of a tractor factory on the outskirts of Kharkiv and um, the socialist city, you know, kind of like the residential area that's that's um, designed and built for the the tractor factory workers. Um, and and in the book, I mean, you know, there's a reason that I put it last because I think, I mean, the way that I wrote about it in the book is like this is a success. Right. And like there's this kind of through line in the book that that says, um, you know, basically, 
you know, when the Soviets kind of started this project in the, in the 1920s, let's say, like, they had no idea what socialist architecture was going to be. Like, they're figuring it out as they go along. And by the time they get to Kharkiv, um, it's, it becomes clear that in order to kind of populate, you know, and in a way kind of internally con- like colonize the Soviet Union, um, standardized architecture is going to be the answer, right? You you design like a certain number of types, whether it's like factories or housing. And then once you have those types and they're working pretty well, you can just like, blow up, like, you know, like put them anywhere basically. Right. And, and what I found in Kharkiv is that both the tractor factory itself, but then also the housing, you know, they, they use a very limited number of types and like, boom, like instant city. Right. Um, and then, you know, when you were talking before about, when you said, you know, when people think of, so- of Soviet architecture, Russian architecture, I thought you were going to say, like, people think of the big um, concrete high rises. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's usually what I get. Like, not That's the, not I mean, I no, people I are like, oh, like, ah, oh, like, why would you ever study, like, Soviet architecture? It's so dull, and right? Um, but, um, but that was when, you know, if the state's building everything, you choose a limited number and you just do it again and again and again. Right. Um, so at any rate, the, the you know, Kharkiv was, was a kind of um, architectural success story, I would say. Um, but then, you know, after, after the war started, um, I, I thought more about that and, um, and really started to think about uh, like specifically that whole Eastern part of Ukraine that Kharkiv is part of, you know, includes the Donbass you know, which again is a, you know, kind of a place that probably was not on most people's mental map um, before the war and is now, I mean, it was part of this whole, like, like really massive kind of industrialization of, of that whole part of Ukraine, mostly led by kind of Russian speakers. Um, And it was a kind of a colonizing effort, um, you know, in effect, and, and architects were implicated in that. And, and in fact, like the, I, I don't write about it in the book, but have since done a little bit of research, the, the steel factory, the Azovstal factory, that was the real kind of holdout um, in Mariupol, uh, was also a first five-year plan project started in 1929, 1930. So, um, so, so these projects that I was so excited about, just kind of like as an architect, um, now, have, now, now feel very dark to me. I have to say, um, so so at any rate, um, I've been I've been doing qu- quite a lot of lecturing and um, and trying to, trying to 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 share information, you know, just with people about Ukrainian architecture and the importance of of um, kind of understanding the built environment there. Well, that's sort that's a that's a perfect segue. So often, one of my final questions is, you know, now that the book's been finished, you know, what what's your next project? What what have what's occupied your time? I think you've uh, kind of gone to that question quite a bit already. But so I guess besides the lecturing and also kind of revisiting your subject matter, you know, I guess w- what other projects are in the future? W- what else occupies your time? <laughs> So yeah, the question I have is, even though you kind of gave it away with your lecturing and revisiting some of your subject matter, I mean, I guess what's next for you now that the book's finished? Yeah, I mean, um, I, have a, I, have a, I have a couple projects. The 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 next book that comes out is a co-edited book um, 
with uh, Claire Zimmerman and Jean-Louis Cohen that's called Detroit, Moscow, Detroit. And, and is specifically, there are 13, 14 essays in there. Um, and I write specifically about, um, you know, it, it's, so, it, so it takes place between, let's say, 1928, 1932, same chronology, um, but really focuses on these exchanges between um, American technical consultants and the Soviet Union. Um, so I write, uh, my chapter in that book is about, um, I, I read through, it was fun, actually, I read through um, the the memoirs of American consultants who went to the Soviet Union and then came back and then kind of wrote about what they, their, their experiences. Um, so that's one project. And then, and then the second project um, that I'm working on now is about, also about transnational architectural exchange, but specifically about um, housing, so worker housing. And the first um, federally funded public housing in the U.S. was in Atlanta, which is where I now live. Um, and uh, and so and so the next book will be about the ways in which kind of European ideas about worker housing, in a way, got got kind of like brought into the U.S. through Atlanta kind of filtered, let's say, through Jim Crow South and then kind of exported to other sites in, um, in the U.S. So, so I'm very interested in like these big map kind of um, questions about how architecture travels, you know, ideas, ideas and forms in architecture travel. So well, perhaps yeah. we can talk again in the future then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever that is done and, you know, a million years, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> yes. not that long. I yeah, know it's not as quick. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again. I know there's so much more we could cover, but I don't want to keep you here all day. So, well, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for reading the book. Um, I'm really, yeah, I'm really delighted that you, um, that you like d- derived pleasure from that competition, uh, brief in the back of the book. Cause it is, I mean, I, I just, it totally blew me away. Agreed. Yes. And for everyone listening, as I said, you'll make sure you check that part out. And so, yeah, so thank you again for speaking with me. My pleasure. Um, and can I can I make one last little plug? I didn't ask you if I could do this, but I um, so so I, I I have been thinking a lot about about Ukraine recently. And um, for the architects who are listening, if you are interested um, to make any donations to any institution, um, there's a uh, a private school of architecture called the Kharkiv School of Architecture um, that had to leave Kharkiv because of the war is now in Western Ukraine and Lviv. Um, but they are training like the future Ukrainian architects who are going to rebuild uh, after the war. So, so if you go to their website, Kharkiv School of Architecture, um, it's, uh, it's very easy to, to donate to them. So that's my little pitch. No, yeah. When this goes uh, live, I'll certainly have them put the link on the uh, landing page. As that well. would be that would be just absolutely great. I can't speak highly uh, enough I'm about sure them. Well, thank you so much, and, and again, thank you for that. And for everyone listening, the book is Spatial Revolution, and please check out the link when which you've probably seen since you've gotten to this episode. So, thank you all, and have a great day. Great, thanks, Brian. <laughs>